I was working undercover. We did a job where some gangsters delivered to me then a parcel of heroin, which was the biggest parcel ever captured in the mainland UK. When all the bad guys were languishing in prison, wondering how they'd been captured, they worked out that I was an undercover cop. And they then worked on the theory that if they kill me, they'll kill the evidence. And to a certain extent, they were right. So this detective sergeant writes this report and foolishly, and against every protocol there is, instead of putting my undercover number in the report, he put my full name in. No. Then he prints the report off, puts it in a suitcase in an unmarked police car. He decides to do a bit of shopping. And of course, what happens? The car gets broken into. The report is now potentially in the hands of those who wanted to kill me. Yeah. So they would be able to identify my full name. They would find me and then put a bullet in the head. Mm. And by the close of play that day, that had been decided that I had to abandon my home, my identity, and move into witch protection. Welcome to The Eventful Entrepreneur. I'm your host, Dodge, and I'm the CEO and founder of the Bournemouth Sevens Festival and the revolutionary Event Crowd, our new online events course. On this podcast, I speak to fascinating people who have all lived eventful lives. So if you want to hear more like this, make sure you subscribe, leave us a glowing review, and you can follow me on Instagram at Dodge Woodall. I reply to every single message. As a founding member of Scotland Yard's undercover unit, Peter Blexley has lived amongst some of the most dangerous and well-organised criminals in Britain. He's passed himself off as an international drug baron, a contract killer, and an arms dealer during his time but it all went horribly wrong when he was forced into witness protection after the FBI uncovered a plot to have him murdered. Peter has since made a name for himself in the media, leading the Hunted squad in Channel 4's hit series Hunted, and is now on the trail of a suspected murderer who has been on the run for over 15 years as part of his BBC podcast Manhunt. He has nerve-wracking stories of near misses, some fascinating insight into living undercover for over a decade, and he shares his reasoning behind dedicating his life to tracking down the UK's most wanted. This is the eventful life of Mr. Peter Blexley. Pete, welcome to the show, mate. Thank you very much for having me. How did you become an undercover copper? As a youth, I was raised by my mum, single parent. You know, my alcoholic and abusive dad had cleared off when I was about 10 or 11 years old. And um, so I became a bit wayward. Um, and my mum knew that, she wasn't stupid. And one day I came home, and to my absolute horror, there was an enormous copper sitting in the lounge of the flat that I lived in with my mum. And of course, my first thought was, what am I gonna get nicked for? <laughs> um, but fortunately, he was there to give me a bit of a careers chat, you yeah. know, and, and show me that joining the cops could be something that would give me stability, a regular wage, some kind of job security, and all that sort of yeah. stuff, which back in the 70s, dare yeah. I say, you know, was very attractive to a kid who'd flunked his education like yeah. me. So, a long story short, signed up, went into the police cadets, suddenly discovered discipline from people that I could relate to and respect, kind of really transformed my life, did the uniform bit, you know, because mm. you go to the training school and you do mm. a couple of years in uniform. I actually stayed in uniform for about four years mm. out of choice. Uh, applied to go into plain clothes, got selected to become a detective. 
went and did my first stint as a detective. Um, I'd been uniform in Peckham in South East London. Cool. Tough old place to be uniform, cool. right? There was me from Bixley Youth, right? <laughs> yeah. Thinking I was a bit of Jack the yeah, Lad, yeah. right? And suddenly at the age of 19, yeah. I'm a PC in Peckham. Jeez. And I realised just what a marshmallow I was, yeah. you know? <laughs> it was like, like, these are proper tough yeah. people around yeah. here. Yeah. Um, learn an awful lot. Of course, sure. you, you can't help to learn a lot mm. about policing when you're, when mm. you're in a, a, a place like that. Um, yeah, became a detective and got transferred to the Royal Borough of Kensington and Chelsea, didn't you know, right? That's a, that's a good move. Well, very different. Yeah. <laughs> very what, different, you're, yeah. You're right, it was perfect. Yeah, of course. Because, of course, suddenly I'm policing completely yeah. different crimes, yeah. completely different demographic people and yeah. all of that. Um, and, again, just broadened my knowledge. So when I'd finished my three years at Kensington and I was eligible for a transfer, the next thing I wanted to do, I'm 25, I wanted to become a Scotland Yard detective. You know, that's a good thing to have on your CV. Yes. And in fairness, it's lasted me, you know, well. Just um, explain to me what a Scotland Yard detective is. Okay, well, in, that, in, in those days, and we're talking about the mid-'80s, there was um, my, all the major squads are based out of Scotland Yard. So back in the day, the most famous squad at the time in the 80s was the Flying Squad, yeah. the Sweeney, yeah. which which spawned a very successful TV show. Um, and then all the other squads, like your major intelligence gathering, surveillance squads, um, fraud squad, art and antique squad, all those kind of squads operated out of the is Yard. Is that right? Okay. Yeah, yeah. And, and Scotland Yard then, and still is, was world-renowned mm. as a centre of expertise. Mm. So if you had Scotland Yard Detective on your CV, it was going to do you a lot of good. Mm. Um, I, in fact, was sort of approached about going on the Flying Squad. So we're now talking the mid 1980s And tell me there, you mentioned Flying Squad. What were they actually doing, the Flying Squad? Arm robberies. Arm robberies, Arm okay. Because, of course, in those days... Yeah, there's loads. Soaring off a shotgun, yeah. putting a stocking over your head yeah. and going over the pavement, as they yeah. called it. In other words, robbing money boxes, yeah. secure core vans yeah. and the like, or actually going into the bank and robbing those was a lucrative business. Yeah. Comes with a very high price if you got caught because mm. the flying squad in those days were pretty good at shooting armed robbers dead. Mm. Um, and they were allowed to, weren't they? Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. And, you know, and, and many robbers did lose their lives yeah. on a bit of work. Yeah. Um, and that was part of the reason why armed robbery was beginning to lose its allure a little yeah. bit. And, of course, if you didn't get shot but you did get captured on the pavement, yeah. you're staring down the barrel of 25 years, right, okay. 30 years in jail and all of that. So the risk and the reward kind of thing began to change yeah. about this time. And the reason... And what, we talk, what, year, what, what decade are we talking there? Mid-80s. Mid-80s, yeah. Mid okay. 80s, yeah. yeah. And the, the reason there was such a massive sea change in the higher echelons of criminality was drugs. Yes. Because it was the start of the explosion of cocaine yeah. onto the streets of Britain. Yeah. Started in London, of course, but every other major city followed suit. But at the time in the 80s, essentially cocaine, certainly the early 80s, cocaine had been the preserve of some people in the entertainment industry, music yeah. and, and, and the like, um, or the higher echelons of the establishment, shall we say, the aristocracy. It wasn't how it has become now That's right. a drug that is taken by brickies, chippies, yeah. plasterers, yeah. labourers, you know, and everyone. Dentists, yeah, the yeah yeah, 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 yeah. On a Friday night, you know, now there's everyone hoovering up tons of gear, 
you know, throughout the UK. <laughs> but back in those days, it was just beginning. Yeah. So the, the availability of it was That's right. just beginning. Didn't they take back back then? It was for the yuppies in the city, wasn't it? Grandma Charlie in yeah. one hand, bottle of champagne yeah. in the other. But you see, as, as more and more people started getting into it and using it, so, of course, more and more people started importing it. Yeah. And there was a lot more on the streets. And that's how it eventually filtered down to the, the, the bloke in the street or the mm. woman in the street. Mm. And, and, of course, we're now at that situation whereby I reckon I could be taken to any town, village, hamlet, city, anywhere across the UK. And within about 20 minutes or half hour or so, I reckon I could source a bit of gear if yeah. I wanted to. Yeah, it's madness, isn't it? It's everywhere. It's yeah. everywhere. Yeah. Uh, and the real madness is actually the fact that it's illegal and that we've still got this Agree. drug prohibition. You know, it's it's frankly ludicrous. It should be looked at as a health issue, yeah. as, a, as a public sort of welfare kind of issue. And if we legalised and regulated, those two words have to come together, legalised mm. and regulated all drugs, then I think we would change the landscape and make the world a far better place. Mm. Mm. So going back then, what, 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 give, me, give me an example of a mission you were on as an undercover copper. Right, so I've gone up the yard. If I, if I may just say, yep. I, I decided not to go to the, the flying squad because yep. I could see that armed robbery was losing its popularity yeah. and people were getting into serving up gear and yeah. importing gear. So I thought, that's where the focus would be. Yeah. That's where they'll throw the money at. You know, that's where I'll earn the most overtime. Yeah. <laughs> um, so, yeah, was lucky enough to get onto the Central Drug Squad. So I'm up at the yard. I'm 25. I'm young, fit and fearless. And one day, um, one of the bosses saunters down the uh, from, from his office down to you know, our group of tables. And he says, uh, we've got an undercover job coming. Anybody fancy having a go at it? It was that unscientific, right? Well, my hand shot yeah, up course. quicker than a five-year-old who knows the answer to teacher's question, yeah. you know what I mean? Yeah. And I said, yeah, I'll have a go because I'd been watching. I'd been there for a couple of months and I'd been watching how the old boys and girls were yeah. doing it. And I thought, actually, I think I can do that and I might be able to do it a bit better because yeah. I very much had my ear at the ground in mm. terms of, the trends in drugs and how people were serving mm. it up and all that kind of stuff. And so that was it, right, go on in, off you go mm. and have a go. Mm. And that started over 10 years of me working undercover, pretending to be a gangster, um, buying drugs, tons and tons of drugs of all different shapes, sizes and descriptions, um, pretending to be an armed robber, pretending to be a contract killer, buying lorry loads of stolen trainers or whiskey, counterfeit currency, all that kind of stuff. I had a bonkers decade just pretending to be a wrongan. Tell me what it was like. Were you having were you ever were you bugged up with mics? Do you have cameras back then? What, how, how did it work? Or were you just finding out who's who at the top of the pile? Right. In those days, the uh, the equipment that was available, we're talking about the pre digital age, yeah, yeah. was pretty unsophisticated. And they had a recording device that was called a Nagra, which was about the size of, if you look at a, a standard paperback book yeah. and you imagine it being two-thirds of the size yeah. of that, that's how big a Nagra was. And it would have two wires that would come out from it and they would have to go over each shoulder and the mics would be taped <laughs> inside there, right? And the Nagra would sit in the base of your back. It would be tight taped to your body or some undercover operative sort of got their wives or their mums to build a harness that it would sit in, right? Well... That's all well and good if you're going out to meet a, meet a bunch of crooks that are not particularly suspicious. Mm. But the people that I was operating against, you know, people who were serving up massive quantities of drugs, 
who were going to go to prison for a very long time, mm. were quite understandably a nervy and rather jumpy bunch, mm. generally speaking. Mm. And I would get stuck up against the wall in the bo in the pub toilets and be rubbed down by these people because yeah. they were obviously concerned that I might be an undercover cop. Mm. You know, that was a kind of standard opening line from loads mm. of them. Um, and so I was never going to wear an Agra. No. I said, I'm just not wearing it's it. It's not, just not worth it's your just life, too is risky. it? Yeah, yeah it's just of course. Complete nonsense. They did, of course, start building some more high tech kit with the helps of the spooks who were helping the security services. They're technical people, you know. And they came up with a pen that had a microphone in it. And they came up with a pair of shoes. And I took one look at those. I said, I'm not wearing them. Like, just <laughs> forget it. You know, I'm trying to portray the image yeah, yeah. of being a Jack the Lad yeah. South East London yeah. with a few bob to yeah. spend on gear. Yeah. And they want me to wear something that you'd expect a Sunday school teacher yeah. to wear. You know what I mean? Like, I'm not having it. Yeah, yeah. Um, and then and the pen, people took it out and it didn't work unless it was pointing in the right direction yeah. and the receiver could be positioned and all that kind of malarkey. So by and large, um, I didn't rely on the tech because it just wasn't good enough. Uh, but what that meant was when I'd leave a meeting with the bad guys, no matter how long that could be, could be half hour, could be five hours, I'd have to get back to my office or wherever I could and then write up the mm. notes. Mm. So I would spend hours mm. just writing reams and reams and reams of all the conversations that went on and all of that. But what that meant, because it wasn't corroborated, that when you then gave evidence at court, you had to be a very convincing witness. Mm. Because, you know, people would say, well, there's no corroboration of this mm. evidence. And I say, well, actually, we did get the photographer who was plugged up in a covert observation point to photograph me going into the premises, mm. the bad guy going into the premises, or us coming out together, for example. So we can prove that a meet took place. Now what I have to prove and convince a jury is that the conversation I've recorded is legitimate and genuine mm. and I'm not fitting anybody up, verbally, mm. anybody up or any of that kind of stuff. And then, of course, when you added to the fact that invariably the bad guys would bring the drugs onto the plot or the guns or the counterfeit currency, whatever it may be, I would leg it, they'd be captured, the gear would be seized, yeah. it all tied it up into a pretty neat yeah. evidence package and the majority of people I operated against would end up pleading guilty. Mm. Did you have any previous history before you become undercover copper in terms of trying gear, doing naughty deals? Is that a police van I can hear pulling up outside? <laughs> Am I going to get like slung in the cuffs and dragged out of here in a bit? No, no. Obviously, you know, I've got. I was born and raised in Bexley, yeah. so it's fair to say, and I love the party. So it's fair to say I was no stranger to gear. Yeah, okay. Um, and when I went to Peckham, of course, we had a large Afro-Caribbean population mm. there, where smoking cannabis was part of the culture. Mm. So I'd encountered a lot of that. Mm. Um, and then I went to Kensington and broadened my horizons, got a lot of experience around cocaine, uh, LSD, heroin and the like. Mm. So, and, and when of course I worked undercover, mm. I kind of really was determined to learn as much about gear mm. in whatever way, whatever opportunity I mm. could, because I wasn't playing at it yeah. in my age. You know what yeah, I mean? Yeah. And I ditched my warrant card and I, assumed that identity, I was going out there and I was doing it for real. Because yeah. if I wasn't convincing myself yeah, right. I was for real, yeah. how could I convince the people in front mm. of me that I was for real? Did you know, did you feel that you blended in well? Yeah, yeah, generally speaking, you know, generally speaking, it, it was fine because I always, and I used to tell people that, were, were, that we later ended up training and I would tell them, you know, 
the easiest light to tell is one that's closest to the truth. Mm. So, you know, I'd been involved in petty crime as a kid. Mm. You know, I didn't necessarily associate with colleagues when I was off duty. You know, so my mates that, you know, ran a pub in Bexley Heath and mm. I would go to, you know, all the devils were there, if you know what I mean. Yeah. So I kind of, um, and I'd stick to that South East London yeah. persona. Yeah. Except the the, the, the the stretch of it was, you know, I'd run pubs or bars or clubs or snook the halls and I had plenty of cash, which yeah. I wanted to reinvest. And that's what the image you gave. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And I used to stick to talking about the three Fs, pardon the language, fighting, fucking and football. Yeah. Right? Because, you know, they were the things that I knew a bit about. Yeah. You know, they were the things that were in my life yeah. kind of thing. So, yeah. so I would stick to talking about those yeah. kind of things. Obviously, I would never talk about my own beloved football club. Yeah. I was always, if they said, well, who do you support? I would tell a lie mm. and say I supported our nearest and sort of most disliked rivals kind mm. of thing. Um, who would they be? <laughs> well, I'm a lifelong QPR fan. And I'm know. a lifelong West Ham fan. Indeed, indeed. You are, to a certain extent, I think, to East London, what we are, to West London. Very similar kind of yeah. clubs in terms of support a base, you know, the sort yeah. of people we are. We, yeah. we don't do it for the glory, mm. do we? We mm. do it because we love the club. But then if I went undercover, <laughs> sometimes I would say, because football's always been so dominant in my life, I would say that I was a failed professional footballer. I've mm. got a bit of a scar on my leg. And, of course, back in those days, a broken leg could easily end a career. Mm. So I used to say, you know, my leg got broke when I was a, an mm. apprentice. And uh, and the club dealt me dealt with me dreadfully and this, that and the other. And of course, and they'd say, well, who was it? Who was mm. it? You know, and I'd say it was, excuse me, gulp. That lot from SW6, I can't even bring myself <laughs> to say the name. And if you don't know what I'm talking about, they play in blue and, uh, and they claim to be a West London club, but they've got a Southwestern postcode. So anyway, um, yeah, I'd claim to have been an apprentice for them. Yeah. And, you know, broke my leg and they treated me appallingly so I could just sit that meeting and slag them off all mm. the time, which is a QPR fan made me very yeah, happy. Yeah, lovely. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, those kind of things. Just stick to what you know. You know, I was I was boxing for the Met Police uh, team around about that time, so I knew a bit about boxing and all that kind of stuff. Yeah. And as for the third F, well, you know, I'd had a few girlfriends, so I couldn't ever claim to be an expert on that <laughs> F, but, you know. I tried I had, hard. I had some experience, <laughs> yeah, yeah, thank you. I was a trier in that regard. God loves a trier, Pete. Exactly. So, yeah, so the three Fs, stick to them, yeah. and, and, and that was it. And did you did you stick with one name? You obviously weren't Peter. Sometimes I was. You were, were yeah, you? Yeah, sometimes I was. Well, but, wasn't that ballsy to keep your same name? Well, it's, it's fine because, you know, I was very loath to take ID with me, and I'm mm. talking about false ID mm. with me. You know, because a lot of the crooks that I knew didn't take ID with them mm. when they went out. Mm. You know, all they would take was a cash. Wad, yeah, <laughs> yeah. You know, a, a wad that would choke a donkey, as yeah. we used to say. Yeah. You know, and, and that was it. You know, mm. cash was king and mm. blah, 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 blah. And I'd do exactly the same. But when you do choose a name, if you're going to use a name that's not yours, mm. it has to be a name that you're going to react to. Yes. Now, I, uh, my best mate, in the world at the time was Martin, rest his soul, he's no longer with us. And we shared houses and flats quite a lot of the time. And um, and, and we went everywhere together when we went out. You know, we were as tight as, tight as yeah. two coats of paint. You know, yeah. we really were. And so if I was in a party or in a pub and somebody called Martin's name, I would always react to yeah. it. 
you know, because I'd look. Yeah. Like, who's calling Martin, yeah. you know? So sometimes I'd be Martin because yeah. I knew that was a name I would instantly react mm. to. But if I called myself Sid or Bob or mm. Fred or something like that, it wouldn't have worked. Yeah. I'd have got rumbled really, mm. really quickly. Mm. Um, sometimes I'd use my middle name, which was Charles, mm. still is, funnily enough. Mm. <laughs> yeah. But, you know, and yeah. I'd use that because that's kind of, you know, something that's Sid in yeah. my head as being part of my name. But, um, yeah. A lot of the time, I'd, I'd, I'd be Peter, and that that'd be was fine. There, was there any other time? Was there any times, Pete, when you thought you'd been clocked? Oh, countless times. Well, did you get paranoid with that? You have to be on on red alert. To yeah. It, on one particular occasion, so I'm buying this. I'm, I'm negotiating to buy this parcel of heroin from these bunch of crooks in sort. How much? Bayswater, roughly four or five kilos, I think. So we're probably talking about. 800 grand or yeah, something. Yeah. And um, and they take me to a basement restaurant right in Bayswater. And so we go down the steps and I was on my jack. There was two or three of them. And as we go down the steps to the door, there is this enormous bloke on the door, right? I mean, he is just a monster. And uh, as we walk through, of course, he knows I'm not a regular, right? The twat just pulls his jacket open, right, just so that I can see the the, the grip yeah. of the handgun that he's yeah. got in the shoulder yeah. of Yeah. You know, like, just like, well, what are you trying to do, mate? I mean, you know, what do you expect me to do? Yeah. You know, it was it was just kind of unnecessary. And, and, and if bad guys ever talked or pulled guns onto the plot, mm. I would always get really irritated by yeah. it. And I'd say, well, you know, what are you trying to prove here? Mm. You know, it's, this ain't about who's the artist. Mm. This isn't some kind of willy-waggling contest yeah. here. I'm a businessman. Yeah. And you start bringing that mm. to a business meeting or a trade is very unprofessional. Mm. Because if it all goes wrong, instead of us perhaps looking down the barrel of a 10 or a 15, mm. we're going to get 25s and 30s wrapped mm. around us. Mm. And then, so you bring that. So do you want me to bring one and all? Mm. And mm. I'll bring a bigger one. Mm. And then where does it go? And mm. then it escalates and it gets ungentlemanly mm. and unbusinesslike. Mm. So put that away. Take that away. Have a walk around the block. Give your head a wobble. And then if you want to talk business, come in here and we'll talk business. Mm. Thank you very much. Mm. So not- you knew how to turn it on as well. Well, yeah, because I'm not here for yeah. any nonsense. I'm yeah. here to conduct a, a, a business deal. Yeah. So be businesslike, please. Mm. And get that out of here. Mm. Anyway, so back to the geezer on the door, right? Pulls the jacket up mm. just to show me. Yeah, okay. Anyway, so we go in this basement restaurant and we sat down. By now, I think I've got two or three of them at this table. It wasn't that far away from Kensington where I'd previously worked as a detective, mm. you know, wearing a suit and tie at work most days and going <laughs> out and, you know, overtly investigating crimes. Yeah. You can probably guess what happens next. They call the waitress over and just out the corner of my eye, I go, oh, truth. I kid you not, about six months earlier, I'd nicked her for a load of check fraud, right? Back in the days with check cards and all of that. So she's coming here. The the guys are are there. She's approaching the table from this side. So what I did was I kind of like buried my head in my shoulder as much as I could and just leant on my hand like that and just tried to look as casual as I possibly could whilst covering <laughs> as much of my face as I possibly could. And so she came out and I'm just and she and, and they order their drinks and she says to me, what do you want? Yeah, whatever they're having. Because I wasn't going to yeah. turn around to her and say, you know, yeah. yeah. 
it was pretty tense from there on, mm. you know, really tense, because she could have just gone, oh, yeah, there's that detective from Kensington Nick. Yeah. Um, was it foolish of me to be operating in Bayswater when I'd worked overtly in Kensington? Arguably, yes. But, you know, I managed to get away with it, and that job actually came off that night. You know, they brought the gear on the plot outside the uh, restaurant. They got nicked. I legged it. Funnily enough, somebody from uh, two or three stories high flat threw a bucket load of urine over my colleagues as they were making the arrest, mm. and there was mm. all uh, a lot of <laughs> kind of nonsense going on. So, um, would you get? Would you have a trigger? Would you have a little trigger mark or something? Would you nod someone is or is a little button you'd press or something? Or was or they um, all waiting outside while you're in doing the job? Well, yeah, signals. Obviously, you know, if if. On, on the day that a trade is due to go down, yeah. I would prearrange a signal with the operational head, yeah. which would signify, that signal actually means three things. Number one, the gear's here. Number two, I think from what I've seen that they can arrest the bad guys. And thirdly, and the least importantly, I can escape. Yeah. So that message signifies three things. Now, I won't give an awful lot of tradecraft away, but you can imagine it would. I would always choose a signal which, to us now, if I were to do it, would look quite natural. Yeah. So it wouldn't alarm you. Mm. Um, but to me, it's not a natural thing. Now, <laughs> there was one colleague, for example, one day, um, who said that he would blow his nose as a signal, right? Now... You know, that's just like, <laughs> you, you know what's coming, don't you? Yeah. yeah. So he's out, like, on the plot one cold and wintry night, and because he's quite a polite sort of guy, you see, I'd have gone like that, yeah. right? He pulls out handkerchief, blows his nose. Next thing, all merry hell kicks off, right? And there's no bad guys there. There's no gear, yeah. you know, and he's completely, like, ruined the job. Yeah. Um, but I would do something that would be noticeable, would take me a little bit of time to do so there could be no confusion about it. And uh, and then the operational head could call the hit, as we mm. would say. How would you get out? Leg it, invariably. No, but there must be a point where you're going, do I leg it now or do I sit and wait? Do you wait till the old bill to come in to nick them and you sort of gently walk away? They'll clock you knowing that you were undercover and you've just done them a kipper. Most of the time, all merry hell broke loose. So say, for example, I'm in a car park, yeah. okay, and the gears has arrived. Now, I'm very much simplifying it because usually there would be like a decoy car or they'd come in and they'd be having a look. There'd be spotters everywhere. The bad guys have got spotters. So our surveillance people, who were the real heroes of the hour, were absolutely brilliant because they were grey, they were indistinguishable, and they would just blend and hide yeah. and be there and nobody would see them coming. Um, whilst, of course, generally speaking, the attack teams would be piled together in the back of a van somewhere, which would mm. then just swing round the corner when the mm. signal was given and the hit was given. Mm. Yeah, it, it, it would all depend on the circumstances. Mm. A, a lot of the time, say, for example, it's a car park, I give the signal, okay, so I, I understand there's going to be a slight time lag between the operational commander seeing that signal or having it relayed to him and then him them going, right, attack, 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 or... And then, of course, that language then had to become strike, strike, strike. And then it becomes go, 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 mm. you know, as the language mm. kind of mm. morphs. Yeah, invariably then, coppers would spring out of everywhere, start jumping on everybody, nicking everybody, trying to secure the parcel, because I've already said, you know, the parcel's here. Um, and in all that mayhem, when everybody really, from the side of me and the bad guys, are looking out for themselves, trying to leg it, 
you know, I would just be off like a long dog, leaping mm. over car bonnets and walls mm. and all that sort of stuff and, and getting away as best I could. Were you ever tempted and did you ever take any of the gear for yourself on a deal? So, you negotiate to buy £100,000 worth of coke. Say it's four or five kilos, 25 or 20 mm. grand a kilo. Mm. That temptation simply never arose for me because mm. it would be called onto the plot. Mm. The bosses would know how much the negotiations were going to be for. Mm. They would know how much money I've booked out of Scotland Yard, mm. out of the cash room, and I'm taken to the plot. Mm. So if I, you know, number one, I couldn't have that opportunity. Mm. The opportunity for that to happen actually would be the detectives who are, who, who make the arrests and seize the drugs. Yeah. They're the ones with the opportunity yeah, okay. to have a weed out of the parcel and then okay. go off and have a swindle and yeah, all that sort of yeah. stuff. And it would be utterly naive for anybody to think that that didn't happen from yeah. time to time. In fact, on one occasion, I was negotiating to buy a parcel of LSD. Now, these came in sheets, on perforated yeah. sheets of paper, like blotting paper. Mm. You know, you just peel one off, mm. pop it on your tongue, mm. and boom, away you go. I think I negotiated to buy thirty thousand tabs of LSD. How much that coming out? It wasn't. It wasn't a lot of money. No. They were charging a, a pound or one twenty-five a yeah. tab okay. or something like that. Mm. Um. So the job went down. Everybody was nicked. Now, of course, I didn't count the thirty thousand tabs, but I then went off and I think I counted the sheets. I might have done that. Yeah, there might have been five hundred to a sheet or mm. something, and I've kind of rattled through mm. them. Anyway. I've got back to wherever it was, the nick or the yard, mm. and written up my notes for the 30,000. And then I find out the following day they've been charged with possession of 20,000. <laughs> so somebody's, somebody's had a pound note out yeah. of that, haven't they? 10 grand. One way or another. Yeah. Somebody has had, has, had a, has had a real freaking yeah. weed out of it. But that <laughs> pales into insignificance when I tell you about a job when I wasn't working undercover. But it was one of the most challenging times for me. Now, I'd been working undercover for some years, so I had quite a reputation. Um, and of course, a lot of people knew me and I didn't know them. What I mean is, on the day that an operation is going to go down, mm. there's a big briefing. You'll have a surveillance team, the arrest team, the investigating team, you might have the firearms team and all of that. So there could be, quite commonly, 50, 80, 100 cops. Yeah in a briefing environment, I get wheeled on towards the end of the briefing so that people know what I look like yeah. um, and I might say a few words about what my intentions were and then I go off mm. to do my undercover mm. thing. Now, those 100 cops all think they know me, yeah, right? Because, yeah. you know, they've seen me, they're wrapped around a job that yeah. I'm doing. So because you come the centrepiece of that job, lots of people get to know you yeah. and, and the, or they think they know you and I don't really know them. Yeah. And it still happens to this day yeah. that I can go and meet somebody from the security industry that used to be in the cops and they'll say, oh, yeah, 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 yeah. I was talking to a bloke who knows you, you know. Yeah, you trained him 25 yeah. years ago and he's talking and I'm some kind of yeah. mate and quite frankly, I, I don't remember the name or the face. But anyway... So consequently, my reputation spread quite widely mm. amongst specialist squads at the yard and detective units and all of that. And one day I get a phone call from a detective that I'd previously known at Kensington, funnily enough. And um, he said, Blex, we've got to have a meet. And I could just tell by the tone of this man's voice that he was deeply, deeply distressed. I said, okay. I said, when? He said, 
when can you make it? I went, all right, all right, tonight. So we went and had a meet, and he was working for um, for a squad who were involved in investigating serious and organised crime. And on that squad, I think there was either 14 or 17 members of, of the squad. But within that squad, they had what they called an inner sanctum of 10 detectives who were getting up to some pretty naughty stuff. And he said to me that the inner sanctum of these 10 had gone on a drugs raid and they had stolen £200,000 in cash, right? Now, <laughs> this is kind of tax-free, yeah. you know what I mean, yeah. right? They've nicked it from drug dealers. And the reason that coppers would do that in those days is because if, for example, you arrest a bunch of bad guys with 10 kilos of coke and you only declare five... Mm. So you drag them into the charge mm. room and you say to the sergeant, we've arrested these people for conspiracy to supply ten, uh, five kilos of coke. Yeah. They're not going to scream and go, no, actually we had 10. Yeah. You know, yeah. so they kind of, yeah. you know, accepted that it was almost, you know, if you were unscrupulous, if you were corrupt, and that's what some detectives were doing. Yeah. I mean, some of them got nicked for it and went to jail for a long time. Mm. Um, Must have been tempting, though, for some of them, if they're on back then 18 grand, 20 grand or whatever. Yeah, and you spend your entire working week doing surveillance behind people who are driving Mercs and Beamers and they live in a massive mock Tudor gaff <laughs> on the outskirts of Essex. Kent or Essex yeah. or something like that. Yeah. You know, They have no discernible means of earning a living mm. doing a straight day's work mm. and you follow them for months on end and then finally that job comes to a fruition and they get nicked. Yeah, the temptation is there, but... If you do that and you get rumbled, yeah. all that work that you and your straight colleagues have done mm. for all those months and all that angst and kind of envy that you've had towards mm. them for living in the big gaff, mm. for having the mercs, the beamers, the mm. private cinema in the house and this, that and the other has been a complete waste of time because mm. you jeopardise, in fact, you ruin the investigation yeah. and the case. And it goes would, that would that ruin the case, would it? Yeah, because as soon as any wrongdoing gets rumbled, nobody can be regarded as a witness of truth. They're all acquitted and they walk out of court. Right. And right. in a okay. strange kind of way, you're doing them a favour. Yeah. You go nicking their money, nicking their gear, yeah. you're actually doing them a favour. If you're mm. nicking their gear, they're going to get less prison yeah. than they should do. Yeah. Right? And if and you get caught nicking their gear, the, the judge will go, everyone's off. Just, well, apart from just, the apart just, from the copper who's just, yeah. you know, convicted and you'll see coppers going to prison instead of the bad yeah. guys. Yeah. So you know what I mean? It's on numerous levels, it's bang out of order. Mm. So back to this young kind of detective who's very distressed. I go and meet him, we're in a pub. And he said, Yeah, he said that, and he'd gone on to that team. And he did say to me, he said, Look, we've done some we've done some bad stuff on this team, he said, which I'm not very proud of, he said. I said, right, okay, but well, I wasn't about to sort of stand in judgment of it. I wanted him to get to the point because he was deeply, deeply distressed. He said, um, we've had a weed, as they would call it, mm. right? nicking a bit. Mm. Right? He said, we've uh, we've had a weed of 200 grand, mm. 200,000 pounds. So to put it in plain English, we've stolen 200,000 mm. pounds. And it's been divvied up between the 10 mm. in the inner sanctum, the yep. corrupt 10, because all the other 
four or seven detectives are, are utterly unknowing yeah. as to what's going on. Because yeah. you imagine, if you've got that amount of detectives in a team that are corrupt, yeah. they can all make sure that the straight ones are looking the other way. Yeah, of course. You know what I mean? Yeah. And, or they're busy, you yeah. know. Um, so they've nicked this 200 grand. They've divvied it up, so they've all got 20 grand. But one of the guys on the inner sanctum, one of the corrupt 10, was in a relationship with one of the straight oh, no. seven, right? Yeah, yeah, okay. And they were in a long-term relationship. And they were, I think, quite clearly falling in love with each mm. other. And what he'd done, he'd taken his 20 and given his 10 to the woman he was falling in love with, right? So the other nine went, are you mad? <laughs> right? Yeah. You have just now potentially put us all at risk because if that 10 sits uncomfortably with her and she goes off to the anti-corruption unit mm. and tells them what's going on, mm. we're all going to go to jail. Mm. So do you know what I decided to do? Murder her. He said, so we're going to have to kill her. You're joking, so that man. was the nine. Obviously, they had this conversation without the knowledge of the man mm. who was in love yeah. with her and had given her yeah, the 10. Yeah, yeah. yeah, and the other nine said, yeah, you have decided we're going to kill her. Did they kill her? Well, he looked at me, he said, look, you know, I know I've done some wrong things, right? You know, I know we shouldn't have taken that 200 mm. grand. Mm. He said, but there's, and this was kind of his perverse thinking, really. He said, you know, there's doing wrong, but then yeah. there's killing a colleague. He yeah. said, and I didn't sign up for that. Mm. Mm, I did point out to him that actually, if he hadn't signed up for nicking 200 grand in the first place, his situation mm. wouldn't have arisen. Mm. But, you know, his primary concern was that he didn't want his colleague to be murdered by his other corrupt colleagues. Mm. So I said, right, okay, leave it with me. Um, I didn't quite know what I was going to do, mm. but I knew I had to do something and I knew I had to do it pretty damn sharpish. Now, what I was not going to do, and I will accept any criticism that's going to come my way, I accept that if some people are quite frankly appalled by what I'm about to say, um, I was not about to run off to the anti-corruption unit mm. um, and tell them what I'd just been told, right? I wasn't going to do that. He had a crisis of, of conscience, mm. right? It wasn't my crisis of conscience. Um, I was there to kind of, you know, help him, but I realised I had a an obligation to try and ensure that this murder plot didn't actually come to fruition. So, you know, he had the choice. He knew he had the choice. He could have gone off to you know, the anti-corruption lot and been put into witness mm. protection and, mm. you know, would have been sacked and then would have given Queen's evidence against the other nine and all that sort of stuff, not only for nicking 200 grand, but mm. for conspiracy to murder. Yeah, right. You know. Um, anyway, I dealt with it in the way that I decided to do and I accepted it's a way that could attract criticism. And basically I went off and had a chat with a couple of extremely well-connected senior detectives, um, certainly senior to me. And suffice to say, that officer was not murdered. Um, that squad were not arrested for the theft of the £200,000. They were not arrested for conspiracy to murder. In my very scant defence, I didn't have any direct evidence of that. It was only hearsay that I'd been told. Um, so the murder didn't happen. Uh, they were not prosecuted for the theft of the 200,000 pounds, but what did happen, 
sometime later is that a number of that squad were arrested for other corruption offences mm. and did go to jail. Mm. Interesting. Have you ever been on a job when it's gone tits up? Countless times. I mean, you know, tits up in terms of me getting stabbed in the neck, which was... Let's have a look. See the oh, old yeah. fading scar yeah, still yeah, there? Yeah, yeah. Um, Tell me that story. Yeah, that was... <laughs> I'd been at the yard quite a while. I was quite experienced in undercover jobs and there was a new detective inspector came on the team. On, on one of the other teams, yeah. on one of the other teams. And he was going out to do his first, to, to sort of manage, you know, be the operational commander on his first undercover operation. And one of the bosses said, Blex, pop along, you know, and just give him a bit of a leg up sort yeah. of thing, as, as and where appropriate. So I said, yeah, happily, happily do that. So I went off, not working undercover, but as part of the sort of arrest team and the investigating team and all that, in, a, in an overt role mm. rather than a, an undercover role. And the undercover officers did very well. The parcel got called on to uh, a supermarket car park in Tooting in South London. Mm. The signal was given. The arrests were made. The gear was recovered. The undercover cops escaped. Um, and this new detective inspector was thinking, like, well, what do I do next? Well, what had happened was surveillance officers had followed the bad guys going to and from, to and from, to and from a flat just up the road which was accessed by metal stairs at the back of a parade of mm. shops. So I said to this detective inspector, I said, we've got to go and do that gaff now. Yeah. Like now. Because, of course, what was happening inside that flat, I worked on the theory, rightly as it turned out, that there would be somebody there mm. expecting his drug-dealing colleague to come back with a nice big hold yeah. all full of cash. Yeah. And the longer the time went on and he didn't come back with the cash, that guy is going to be getting a bit twitchy yeah to say the very least. Yeah. I said, we've got to go now. You know, we can't wait here. We've got to go now. And unfortunately, he didn't take my advice on board and he sort of dithered and he dallied for a little bit. Um, and eventually, some 15 minutes later, he said, well, go on in, Blex. Um, go up there and check it out. So I did. By yourself? No, there was another couple of colleagues, but obviously... I went up to the front door on my Jack Jones mm. because essentially what I wanted to do was check whether I could put the door in mm. myself, you mm. know, whether we needed to get a bit of kit. Mm. You know, doors back in those days were less sturdy yeah. than they are now. Yeah. And I had a I had a bit of a, a knack and a, and a method for taking doors off by gripping the frame either side and actually slamming my backside into the door. Right, okay. As long as you've checked it out before and you know the position of the locks, yeah. if it's just a bog-standard Yale, I know I'm going to be able mm. to pop that door. Mm. You know, if it's got chubs and mm. bottoms and all that sort of stuff, mm. it's going to be a, a completely bannoms, rather. It's going to be a completely different job. But anyway, so I've gone up and I'm doing the door and I'm checking it top and bottom, see if it's got any give, will I be able to get it off, you know. Mm. Or are, in fact, there are a lot of locks down that side and is, in fact, the hinge is going to be the weakest side mm. of the door so I can take it off with a sledge or... Any of that. Anyway, so I'm doing all of that in the dark and trying to be covert, and I hear steps coming towards the front door. Um, what can I do? Anyway, door flies out, announce myself as a cop, but the minute he sees me, he just comes launching himself straight at me. And I thought to start with that he'd punched me mm. in the throat. And 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 I said it bizarrely at the time. It it, it the the noise, there, there was a noise that sounded like a light bulb mm. burst in like they used to in, back in the day. But anyway, I thought he'd just clumped me. 
But as he's come with his forward momentum, bearing in mind I was a lot younger and fitter and thinner <laughs> than I am these days, um, as he's come, I've just then grabbed him and outside there's metal railings for the for the metal steps and I've pinned him over these over these railings mm. and I've got hold of his wrist and in his hand there is, of course, a blood-stained knife mm. and I'm thinking, ah, mm. that's my blood. Mm. This is not a good thing. Um, colleagues came running upstairs. They took him off my hands. I realised that I was bleeding, what looked quite heavily. Mm. So I was sort of escorted down the stairs, sat on the ground. Somebody got a scarf, wrapped my neck up and dialed an ambulance. And for a little while, I was sitting there on the ground rather nervously, not wanting to breathe in very mm. deeply because I thought, if this is a, a serious wound, I'm mm. going to start ingesting yeah. a lot of my own blood. Mm. So I was just... <sighs> just breathing really shallowly, not mm. wanting to get a big gulp of, uh, as I say, of my own blood. So ambulance came, they blue-lighted me to St George's Hospital, which wasn't too far from Tooting, rushed in, A&E doctor comes out, very tall lady with a great presence about her, you know, <laughs> and, uh, and she unwraps the scarf, takes a look, she goes, no problem, flesh wound. And I was like, oh, oh result. thank you, thank <laughs> result. you, thank you, yeah. And she stitched me up a few minutes later and that was it. So how many years were you undercover for? Uh, about 11, 10 or 11. Okay. Yeah, from sort of like 85 to 95. Okay. Tell me about the uh, going on the, the programme, The Hunted. <laughs> well, well, unfortunately, my undercover career led to me having a catastrophic mental health breakdown, which meant that I was... Uh, medically retired from the cops after only 21 years service, mm. so I was 40. Um, on the scrap heap of life, really didn't know what to do, no education to fall back on or anything like that. Um, and I was lucky enough to get a publishing deal for my autobiography, which is still on sale on yeah. Amazon and other <laughs> outlets, called The Gangbuster, um, a book I'm still proud of. What year did um, you write that? 2001. Really? And that um, kind of suddenly, from this very secretive life of living in witness protection program, working undercover and all of that, suddenly my life has done a complete 180 mm. and I'm doing media interviews about my autobiography. Yeah. And I enjoyed it. Yeah. It was uh, it was good fun. Um, so that kind of propelled me into, into the media, a, a, a world that I've lived in for the last 20-odd years, um, by and large. Yeah commented on police and crime and all of that. So when um, certain TV production companies or news outlets or radio programmes have a big police story, they quite often ring me yeah. to give my view and comment on it yeah. um, and still do, fortunately. So when um, Shine TV, which is the production company that makes Hunted, had this idea that they pitched to Channel 4, which was can we film a manhunt? Channel 4 said, yeah, we'll go off and see if you can recruit the people, recruit a team of hunters with the expertise and the specialities that are now needed. And this was sort of 2016, 2015. Mm. Um, and because my name was already out there, they gave me a ring. So I went up, had a chat with them. You know, it was all very nice. Um, they shot a short, you know, taste of tape, as they mm. call it, or mm. a sizzle tape, yeah. or this, that, and the other, where they asked me some questions. And not so many weeks later, I'm a part of this bonkers, brand-new TV show um, called Hunted. Mm. And then on the first episode, I was a deputy, so I was in the office there, and there was a retired senior police officer was the chief. 
Um, and me and my great mate Ben Owen were the two deputies, and we had a laugh. Yeah, I mean, better. we had a proper laugh. I mean, it was hard graft. <laughs> yeah, really, you get paid really for it. hard graft. Oh yeah, 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 okay. yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. Of course. I mean, it was. Um, uh, they go on the run for. Uh, in those days, it was twenty eight days. So it was four solid weeks. Um, you know, all filmed in the operational HQ uptown. Um, and was stuff. it the closest you get to the real thing? Well, it was only ever and remains yeah. a, a, an entertainment show. Yeah. Um, but a lot of the tactics um, that we use replicate real life. Some of it has to be mocked up, of course, yeah. because the state won't grant us access to real systems. Yeah. But um, before anybody starts messaging you or me, the question that I'm most often asked, because people go, fix, it's a fix. <laughs> Right, it's all nonsense. It's a bit. It, trust me, it isn't. Right, there was one thing I said to my team because when series two got commissioned, I was I was promoted to the chief. The other fella wasn't re-engaged, and they asked me if I'd be the chief, and I jumped at the chance. And we had a we had a really great time making it. A lot of stress, a lot of pressure, but you know what? We weren't at the cold face smashing mm. rocks. So mm. let's have some perspective about mm. it all. And I made some friendships that will last for the rest mm. of my life. Um, yeah, and the one thing I always used to say to my team is that we are leaving this show with our integrity yeah. intact. Yeah. So I don't care. If fugitives want to bend the rules or break the rules or do what they like, we as hunters, both in HQ and on the ground, will not. Mm. Our integrity is non-negotiable. Mm. Um, and everybody bought into that because they knew I'd have them off in the blink of an eye yeah. if they didn't. Yeah. And um, and we had a we had a terrific time. And I so did. this must have raised your profile massively. It did, yeah, yeah. It took me from sort of, you know, I don't know, <laughs> to, to boil my life down to Twitter followers, for example. But yeah, I probably had three or four thousand Twitter followers through books and TV mm. and all that sort of stuff. And by the time I left, um, hunted that had multiplied some, mm, you sure. know, four or five times yeah, over. Yeah, yeah. Amazing. Yeah. And what was the next step for you? You come out of you, you come out of Hunted. Did you have something on your mind to say, right, this is the next movement for me? Yeah, well, when I left Hunted, I, I kind of, you know, I'd done four series of the main show and two celebrity versions. And it was the end of the road for both me and the production yeah. company. We'd done as much as we could with it. And I thought, right, as you quite rightly say, my profile has been raised. I'm best known for catching pretend fugitives. You know, I've got a law enforcement investigator background. I'm still an investigator to the bottom of my yeah. boots, really. My my CV reads one line. Mm. You know, <laughs> I find things out that certain people don't want me to know. Yeah. And I've been doing that for over 40 yeah. years. Um, I thought, well, let's hunt a real fugitive. My publisher had said I could write another book because yeah. I'd written three at that and point. And that book was called? So and the contract was for this book called Manhunt, uh, which was published um, in September of 2020. So anyway, I'm thinking, what am I going to do? Let's hunt a real fugitive. Let's, you know, let's try and do something. With my previous books have been about unsolved murders as I tried to move those cases forward. Um, yeah, and the publisher said, yeah, go for it. So, and as far as I'm concerned, both literally um, and figuratively speaking, Kevin Parle, P-A-R-L-E, is six foot six, um, and he's wanted for two separate murders, both committed in Liverpool. The first one is the shooting dead of a 16-year-old boy called Liam Kelly in 2004. 
And the second murder is a shooting dead of a 22-year-old mother of three young children, Lucy Hargreaves, who was shot dead in August 2005. And Kevin Powell is still wanted for both those crimes. So I thought, right, I'm going to go after him because nobody else on the uh, National Crime Agency's most wanted list is wanted for two murders, yeah. two separate murders. Yeah. So both, you know, by terms of being six foot six and the nature of the crimes he's wanted for. And what's his accent? He stood head and shoulders. A soft Liverpool accent. Okay. He can't, When I say soft, I don't mean as in camp mm. or anything like that. But he comes from the south side of the city. So he's not got one of those really broad kind of Scouse accents that you might hear. Mm. His is a more sort of toned down version mm. of, a, of a Scouse accent. And for the last nearly three years of my life, I have dedicated myself to trying to find him. And it dominates my life, which I'm not complaining about. This was all my idea. And bearing in mind he's been on, on the run from law enforcement now for nearly 18 years. It'll be 18 years in the summer. I've got at least 15 years to go before I'm as useless at them as catching him. Yeah. Because um, I've only been doing it for three years. But I've been very fortunate that the BBC um, have made a, a podcast about my hunt for him, which is called Manhunt Finding Kevin Powell. It's currently number one in the BBC True Crime charts. It's done remarkably well. I work with a small and brilliant team in terms of editor, producer, narrator. They're all kind of wonderful. Many courageous people have come forward and told me what they know. And that can range from people that believe they've seen him to people who know they've seen him. And this hunt dominates my life and I simply will not rest until one of two things happen. The first one quite clearly being that Kevin Powell is captured or I establish irrefutable evidence of him being dead, but he's not. Um, or, of course, I gasp my last breath because hmm. I'm simply never going to give up. You know, this is this is all about Liam and Lucy. It's all about trying to achieve some justice for their loved ones, those who are left behind, because I've spent so much time over the years with people who have lost a loved one to murder, and I know that they quite simply don't get over it. You just learn to try and live with it and deal with it. You say you're looking for him. Where do you start? Well, I started in Liverpool, because that's where both the crimes were. And so I reached out, and I was very lucky to get a lot of airtime and column inches off of the media. Um, particularly up there in the northwest, um, I'm now holding a, a flyer. Well, my latest version of of, of a wanted flyer uh, about Kevin Powell. So, what's he got? A bald head, ginger beard? Yeah, I mean, he, he's kind of he has had a full beard at some point mm. whilst he's been on the run. I've been told, mm. um, but I'm also told that the image that features on these flyers, which is a computer generated image, they took his original 2004 mugshot. Uh, John Moore's University in Liverpool did, and using computer graphics, they aged it. So this is how they thought he would look in 2016. Um, and people have said it's actually a good and current sort of likeness. So I think we can hopefully rely on that. I have posted thousands of these various flyers because I change them every few months mm. to make them different and put mm. a different slant on them. I've posted thousands of those through letterboxes in Liverpool and many other places where I've been. I've been to Spain, I've been to Ireland, just got back from Dubai. Um, what made you go to Dubai? 
I wanted to get in front of a man who I had been told has been harbouring and funding Kevin Parr and pulling the strings of criminality whilst living in Dubai. If you go into episode 13, that's called catching up. Okay. Because we had 20 months where we didn't put anything out. Yeah. Not because there wasn't anything going on. There mm. was every day of the week. Mm. But with not being able to travel, you know, kind of the, the pod wouldn't really have worked with me just sitting in my office talking through yeah. what, what, what I'm doing. So people can start episode 13 and then you've only got to get up to 19 mm. and you're pretty much up to speed. But Ireland, yeah. So um, How did you know... That he killed two people. He's not convicted of those offences. Okay. He's wanted for them. He's wanted. He's wanted for them. Yeah, there is a European arrest warrant out for his capture and Merseyside police are offering a £20,000 reward for the information. £20,000 on him getting nicked or £20,000 of him being brought to the station or... Marvellous question. Thank you. Um, when I started my hunt for him three years ago, that £20,000 was offered with two conditions attached to it. One, of course, for information leading to his arrest. And secondly, it was based on him being convicted. Well, I've had a, quite a lot of conversations with Merseyside yeah. Police, and we have a rather interesting relationship. Um, let's just say I don't think they're my greatest fans and supporters, Merseyside Police, but that's by the by. Why is that? Well, you know, the police... Policing is all about control. Yeah. They control supporters at football matches. Yeah. They control people on demonstrations and protests. They control crime scenes, witnesses, yeah. suspects. Um, and, of course, they control each other because yeah. it's a disciplined organisation. So when they come across somebody like me, who's a freelancer, self-employed, I'm not employed by anybody. The BBC put the money up for the podcast but not the investigation. You know, the investigation is mine. What's so buying the, flights the, and taxis and stuff and food and you uh, supply uh, it yourself? They'll 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 pay for a flight and a hotel. Yeah. But when it comes to feeding myself yeah. and watering myself and all of that, yeah. I've I've paid for that. In in three years of doing this, even if you take into account the very modest advance I got for writing the book and any money that the BBC has put up for the podcast, I have not put one carrot on my family dining room table. Yeah. I've not made a bean out of this. Yeah. But that's fine. I do other bits of work. You know, I do a bit of after dinner. I do a bit of public speaking. Yeah. I go on the telly as Rent-A-Gob and, you know, yeah. give my opinion on crime and policing yeah. and that sort of stuff. So it's not my only revenue stream. Mm. Um, but, yeah, it's cost me money. You know, I've made a profit on it. And, mm. and nor should I. I'm not complaining about it. It's about Liam, Liam and Lucy. And it's about trying to... Squeeze the planet. It's about shrinking the world so much for Kevin Powell and squeezing the globe by making him the most widely known fugitive on the planet. Squeeze and squeeze and squeeze so that eventually his six foot six head pops up somewhere and law enforcement can slap the handcuffs on. And then he can stand in front of a court of law and answer the allegations made against him. Because that, I think, is how the world should go around. Mm, mm. You know, I believe in truth over lies, right over wrong. Yeah, I know it ain't a perfect world. I'm more than well aware of that. But generally speaking, if we don't have if we don't have confidence in the justice system, then we're we've had it. Yeah. We've absolutely had it. Where do you think he is right now? I can't tell you that. Um, because obviously I would be tipping him the wink. Yeah. And I know that 
um, people that have his best interests at heart, of course, listen to the podcast, monitor my website, monitor my social media. I'm on Twitter, Facebook, Insta, and the world's most boring platform, LinkedIn. Mm. Um, you know, um, and, and they do keep an eye on, on what I'm doing. So, and in fact, if you listen to the, the returning series, one of the episodes we call, it's like they knew we were coming. Mm. And sadly, they did know I was coming. Mm. Um, so, you know, are my communications hacked and all that kind of stuff? Is there corruption within law enforcement? I haven't evidence to say there is at the moment, but we do know that corrupt cops do get captured. Um, so it would be naive to, to, to think that, it, that there might not be. Mm. Um, so it is very difficult. It's me, my pen, my notebook and my mobile phone against global serious and organised crime. So what chance have I got? Well, because I'm not going to give up and because I'm going to stick at it, mm. that gives me a far greater chance of being successful in the end mm. than... Cause, because some people, quite rightly so, particularly in Liverpool, I think, at the start of it three years ago, thought this is just some cockney bloke poking his nose around and pulling some kind of publicity stunt. Yeah. But I got a phone call a couple of months ago from somebody who would appear to be very well connected. And he said, Peter, he said, um, those that are in the know, he said, not not the plastic wannabe mm. gangsters, he said, those that are in the know actually respect you now because they know this hunt is for real. Yeah. Um, and then he went on to say, he said, don't want to hear this bit. He said, but actually, yeah, he was tipped off about you coming down to Spain. Mm. Um, and he legged it. Marbella. We weren't in Marbella, um, but... If you want to have a listen to <laughs> episode to the podcast, <laughs> um, you're quite a ballsy yeah. character, Pete. <clears throat> and I love your honesty. You're straight talking. Have you had death threats? When I was in the cops, of course, you know, and that's what led to me moving into witness protection because uh, people wanted to wipe me from the face of the earth. In terms of my hunt for Kevin Powell, I've had unpleasantness. Um, you know, I've been trolled and people have posted pictures of my house on social media and on one occasion there was an accurate description of the bedroom that I sleep in. But you know what, it, it it just reinforces the fact that they're more scared of me than I am of them. And I'm not talking about puffing my chest mm. out and who's an artist mm. and all that kind of stuff, but I'm utterly determined to to carry on with this and until it till he's either captured, we I, I prove that he's dead, um, or I depart this mortal coil. Mm. Um, I'm just simply not going to give up now. And, and they'll get that by now. You know, this is nearly three years I've been doing it. So people will understand and realise that it's, I'm not a flash in the pan. It's not a publicity stunt. And this is very much for real. Yeah. Do you ever lie in bed at night with the fear? No. I did when I was living in witness protection. Explain to me witness protection. Okay. Well, I was, I was, um, I was working undercover. We did a job where some gangsters delivered to me then a parcel of heroin, which was the biggest parcel ever captured in the mainland UK. How much? Well, then it was 15K, which, I mean, is laughable now, yeah. 15 kilos. I mean, now, you know, people would just... 15 kilos would come in at? About 4 million. Okay. Yeah. Um, you know, I mean, that's small beer considered uh, compared rather to the sizes of today. parcels that get yeah. seized today. But back then in the day, it was uh, it was very big news. Um and kind of to cut a long story short, when all the bad guys were languishing in prison, wondering how they'd been captured, 
they worked out that I was an undercover cop. And they then worked on the theory that if they kill me, they'll kill the evidence. And to a certain extent, they were right. Yeah. You know, if we revert back to that thing about me writing my notes up and all that sort of stuff, they, they did have a point, although we had had the hotel room where he delivered the gear to me all bugged up from mm. wired and sound. Uh, wire. um, so anyway, then foolishly, somebody in the investigating team compiled a report because it was a, an international job. It involved the FBI in America, the Drugs Enforcement Agency in America, Customs and Excise, the Irish police, and it went on and on and on. Big multi-agency job with a lot of egos fighting over who had primacy over it and all that sort of stuff. None of the politics of which remotely interested me because just me and my undercover colleague are going to go and get the job done. Yeah. Be convincing crooks, get the job done, the parcel delivered, boom, we did that. Yeah. Um, so this detective sergeant writes this report um, because the deputy commissioner, I think, or deputy assistant commissioner of the Met, wanted to know everything that had gone on, all about the infighting, because as senior bosses do, they were going off to some sort of meeting. Yeah. And he wrote this report and foolishly, incorrectly, and against every protocol there is, instead of putting my undercover number in the report, he put my full name in it. No. Now, I've got a very unusual name. Yeah. You know, Blexley, B-L-E-K-S-L-E-Y. Yeah. There's only about 14 of them in the UK or yeah. something. Yeah. Um, and then, and this is yet another kind of unbelievable twist to the tale, he prints the report off, takes it out of a police building, that's another major ricket, puts it in a suitcase in an unmarked police car, which he's then driving home, but on the way to go home, he decides to do a bit of shopping. And of course, what happens? The car gets broken into, the suitcase gets nicked. The report is now potentially in the hands of those who wanted to kill me. Yeah. So they would be able to identify my full name. They could find me in the yellow pages. Well, not quite, you know what I mean? Yeah. But they would, yeah. they would find me very easily yeah. and then put a bullet in my head. Mm. So that caused an almighty scream up I got a phone call, don't go home, come to the yard the following day. And by the close of play that day, it had been decided that I had to abandon my home, my identity, and move into witness protection. Wow, wow, wow. So going into witness protection, what does that mean? Two miserable years, that's what it meant to me. It meant that I lived in a completely different name. That What was the name? Well, it wasn't that inventive, actually. But what, what I did do was I took my middle name and used that as a surname. Okay. Um, and it was it was a complete nightmare for me because I've always been a fairly neighbourly sort of bloke. Mm. You know what I mean? My neighbour's alarm goes off. You can guarantee I drop everything and I'm yeah. out there. Yeah. You know, checking their house and all that sort of stuff. And and I just like being neighbourly. Um, and now all of a sudden, speaking to neighbours is my worst nightmare because they're going to say, "Oh, hello, and what's your name? Yeah. And where have you moved from? Yeah. And what do you do for a living?" Yeah. You know, and all I've got to do is heap lie upon lie upon yeah. lie just to go out and mow the lawn in yeah. the morning. Yeah. It was a nightmare, yeah. let alone the fact that I've got to check under the car every day yeah. to make sure some bastard hasn't stuck a bomb underneath mm. it, mm. let alone the fact that I'm concerned I'm going to get a bullet in the back mm. of my head every single day. Yeah. It was a nightmare. Um, so I'm living in one name because, you know, this is how my day would go. And I'm talking about before, say, 11 o'clock in the morning. I'm up at six, half six, going 
go down, there's the post on the doormat. That's in one name, yeah. right? That's the identity I'm living in, mm. in witness protection. I jumped in the car, drove drive to work. That would be my favourite hour of the day because I could put whatever radio station I wanted on and be myself for an hour. I then get to work and one of the bosses will go, hey, Blex, we've got another undercover job coming <laughs> and we want you to go and do it. So by the time 11 o'clock's come round, I've been three different people in one morning, you know, and, and, and I'm con constantly conspiracy theorising yeah. about how did this all go so wrong? Why was my name in it? How could it be printed off? How could it be stolen? You know, and all of this kind of stuff. Um, and I drank too much. You know, yeah. I played a part in my own downfall. It wasn't all everybody else's fault, um, but I drank too much. I smoked too much. I... Uh, yeah, I just conspiracy theorised. And in the end, after two dreadful years, I had a an absolutely catastrophic mental health breakdown, mm, sure. which led to me spending three and a half weeks in a lock-in psychiatric ward. Wow. And a long time after that to, you know, regain my health and, and, and maintain it. It was a long time Did ago. Did you find you were living in that character of the gangster at all? That it just come natural to you? I turned into a monster. Yeah. I mean, and, and, and my hospitalisation came about because I went to the pub and assaulted someone and I've only ever believed in getting gloved up if you're going to have a mm. fight you know go mm. in the ring you know box mm. box do it as a sport um, of course I had a few tear ups in my policing career but that's not fighting that's trying to arrest mm. people or you know that kind of stuff um, I've never been one for fighting I've, I've, you know back in my youth I, I could look after myself yeah. but I'm, I'm, I'm not of that kind of Personality, I've always diffused way, way, way more than I've ever got involved in and by a country mile. But I was so poorly and so ill that a little bit of tittle-tattle upset me and I ended up assaulting a mate and I could really, really have done him some serious harm. And I then knew in a little lucid moment that not only was I a danger to myself, mm. I was a danger to others and other people have realised that and so it wasn't safe to be to be, you know, among the general public mm. and I had to be locked in that psychiatric ward, which was absolutely the right thing for people to do. Wow. It's interesting, isn't it? Because you, I guess you were the pioneer of this undercover drugs thing back in the day before drugs come about. You probably didn't have a mentor to go to and say, what happens next? We've nicked all these people. What happens next to your mind and to your personality and to your mental health? And there was a lot of stigma attached to it. I mean, unbelievably, one very senior police officer came down to visit my mum at her home where, when I was in, in the hospital. And he said to my mum, he just needs a kick up the arse. You know, and uh, a mate of mine uh, that ran my local pub, he said, while you're in hospital, somebody came in, uh, a police officer, and said, he's putting it all on, isn't he? Mm. You know, and there's me chronically ill in yeah. hospital. And the, you know, it was it was like something out of the dark ages. Mm. Um, and unfortunately, I, I know some people have have made considerable strides to improve the welfare for police officers, but many officers still think that welfare is just a poster on the wall. Mm. Just before we finish up here, Pete, I want to know, how much were you getting paid for all this risk? And looking back, would you choose to have done the same route knowing what you know now? I received the same wages as any other detective constable. Um, there was no special allowances for working undercover or anything like that. Um, but I loved the job and I had a talent for lying. 
that essentially I was a professional liar. That was my job to go to work and lie all day yeah. long. And I was, you know, I had a, a, a skill for it. Yeah. Um, so yeah, there was there was no monetary reward whatsoever above and beyond getting paid like any. So what were you doing for the buzz? Yeah, I loved it. I had a talent for it. You know, I, I, I don't want to sound like I'm blowing smoke up my own rear end, but I'm, mm. I could lie. Yeah. You know, I was a pretty good liar. Yeah. So it was fine that I found a niche that I was good at and and and, and did that. Now, I'm glad. I'm glad I had that that decade mm. working undercover. Mm. I'm glad I had those 21 years in the cops. Mm. Um. I don't, I don't regret it. Um, would I do it all over again? Um, if I was nineteen, would I join the police again? I think is a question I probably mm. need to answer. And I would probably say yes, I would. Albeit the job has changed dramatically from what it used to be. Mm. Back in my day, it was essentially. Good guys and bad guys, mm. cops and robbers. Mm. You know, I could go to the, you know, you, you you go to a parade every morning mm. when you start work. I could go to that parade at quarter to six, by six o'clock in the morning, be out on the streets and be nicking people mm. for crime. Mm. Burglars, robbers, drug dealers, car thieves, you name it. Mm. I could nick them and I did. Mm. I loved that thing of policing. I wasn't one for helping old grannies across the street, mm. to be perfectly honest with you. I was never going to be a community body, yeah. Bobby, or anything like yeah. that. But nicking people. Unfortunately now, response police officers don't spend anywhere near as much of their time nicking people, mm. dealing with crime, because they're dealing with mental health breakdowns, they're dealing with all manner of other mm. kind of things that somehow people think is their responsibility mm. when largely I don't think it is the job of the mm. police. I think if you ask the public what they want the police to do, I think they'd say two things. Number one, keep us safe. Number two, nick the bad people. Yeah. Um, but sadly, the police are involved in an awful lot more. But would I do it? if? Yeah, if I was my 18-year-old self again, um, I guess I probably would because it's a job like no other and you can make a difference to people's lives in their darkest hours and you can do that every day mm. of the week. Mm. Pete, I have really, really enjoyed this episode. Thanks for coming on, mate. I love your honesty. Um, where can people find you? I want to also plug your book, Manhunt. Thank you. And where can people find you on social media? Yeah, I'm Peter Blexley. That's B-L-E-K-S-L-E-Y. Apologies for repeating it. I'm on yeah Twitter, Insta, Facebook, the world's biggest snore off LinkedIn. Um, all my books are on Amazon, for example, and other platforms. The one about my the, the first 18 months of my hunt for Kevin Powell is called Manhunt, um, Peter Blexley. Don't confuse it with other books of the same title, please. And the main thing, which will cost you nothing, please go on to your platform, wherever you download your pods from, and search for Manhunt, Finding Kevin Powell. Please subscribe. And the reason that I'm almost on bent knee now asking you to do this is that the more successful the pod is, the more we shrink the world for Kevin Powell. Mm. And the more successful the pod is, the more likely the BBC will be to stamp up more money for more episodes, which means we can keep churning out great content. Yeah, quality. Pete, thoroughly enjoyed this, mate. Thank you ever so much for coming down to Bournemouth here and coming on the show. Thank you very much for having me. Good man. Cheers, Cheers mate.